In the second chapter of John's Gospel, Jesus performs his first miracle at the wedding in Cana. At first glance, the story of changing water into wine seems strange, if not even a bit funny. But with John, there is always deep meaning in the text. And here we hear Christ calling us by example to change a world in need. In this reflection delivered at Church of Our Savior, Mill Valley, on the second Sunday after the Epiphany, Richard Helmer reflects also on the text of a letter from a Birmingham jail by Barton Luther King, Jr. In the name of the one who changes water into wine. Amen. Reading John is always a bit like dropping a coin down a well and waiting for it to land. Things are always deeper than they seem in John, more full of meaning. There's always layer upon layer of profound theological insight, and it always demands a careful investigation of words. And all of that has to be gotten through before we hit bottom, if we ever hit bottom. If we ever hear that coin finally break the surface of the water. And of course, we may not hear the coin break the surface of the water. And that is only John's invitation to us to join in that awesome mystery that we call God. Today's gospel reading is famous for many reasons. It is the first miracle Jesus performs in the gospel of John. It is the first public event that he attends following his baptism and the gathering of his first disciples. There's this wonderful language the passage begins with on the third day. And if you're counting in the chronology of John, it's the eighth day. And so John is doing this wonderful numerology trick and is talking about the eighth day, the day of resurrection, or the third day, also known as the day of resurrection for Christians. And this is the story where Mary, the mother of Jesus, first appears in this gospel. And of course, it is often read and understood as a, virtue extol- as a story excuse me, extolling the virtues of marriage by Christ. But that's a curious part of our tradition, actually, because the bride and the groom remain unnamed. And in fact, they barely enter the story. Instead, the focus begins with a curious exchange between Jesus and his mother. It's sort of a picture postcard of first century Mediterranean family dynamics, isn't it? Leaves us to wonder what kind of relationship John is trying to paint here. Maybe Jesus is just finally exercising his authority as a grown adult. Or maybe he, in some wonderful rabbinical rhetorical matter, is trying to reveal his mother's faith. But what sort of tone of voice does Mary really take when she says to the servants, do whatever he tells you? Because we might hear there a mother throwing up her hands in exasperation and hearing such such harsh words from her firstborn just gives up and walks away. Or maybe it's the words of Mary 
with a profound faith and a pride in her offspring, placing hope in what he might be about to do. And then there's another peculiar exchange which occurs as Jesus asks water to be brought and it changes into wine. I don't know, to our 21st century ears, maybe it sounds like some kind of fancy messianic parlor trick. Maybe it's a little bit self-aggrandizing in some ways, but this is John's gospel and nothing is ever as it seems, is it? Now I have to chuckle a bit at the chief steward. Of all the people in this story, he is the least aware of what's going on. Sort of like a parish priest. Because we are often, sometimes sadly, the last to know what's going on, and perhaps we deserve no better. The chief steward can only remark to the bridegroom that social protocol has been broken, but in a wonderfully strange way. The best wine is served last. The standard order of things is turned on its head. We never hear the reaction of the bridegroom, although it does seem that Jesus' actions have saved his honor. In his culture, the wine running out early would have been an almost unrecoverable disaster. And at a wedding, no less. And all things being equal, you only get one shot at those. So it is the disciples who see that in this sign, a remarkable opening is made for the coming of the reign of God. An opening for a new reality has begun to appear in the most unexpected place and way. And their affection for Jesus is only bound to grow. Switch gears a little bit while sitting in a jail in Birmingham 44 years ago this spring. Martin Luther King Jr. composed a letter that has become among the most legendary documents of the civil rights movement. It was not written to a president or a congressman or a senator or even a state governor, nor was it penned to a mayor or a local official or anyone who had sway over police and policies in the Deep South where Jim Crow and segregation were still alive and well. It was addressed by Martin as a member of the clergy, two members of the clergy, namely eight white Alabama clergymen, a number of whom were bishops, including one who at the time was Bishop Coadjutor of the Episcopal Diocese, of Alabama. One of ours, you might say. Now, they were upset by Martin's leadership of civil disobedience and his messing about with the order of things, especially, it seems, in a place that he didn't call home. He belonged in Atlanta, after all, not in Birmingham. And the way to settle the issue of civil rights for African Americans, they argued, was through the courts and negotiation through timely, ordered process. In other words, the African-American community needed to wait just a little bit longer for the slow wheels of bureaucratic process to work it all out. Funny thing is, Martin Luther King Jr. wrote to them, they'd been waiting for 340 years. 
Sometimes the people in charge just don't get it. Changing water into wine, performing miracles that open eyes and liberate people is a vocation not just reserved for Jesus Christ, but given to the entire Christian church. And it's a messy business. It doesn't follow the cut and dried rules or timely processes or the expected channels of jurisprudence and legislative debate. It involves rather bold action that will empower those who are least empowered and strikes at the heart of old evils with a powerful and life-changing love for those who have been most oppressed and even their oppressors. This is what Martin Luther King Jr. saw from a prison cell that those sitting in their comfortable offices could not see. A man who helped lead a people out of despair and centuries of indignity. A person who, even in the face of death threats, stood up to the powers and principalities of systemic violence and racism. This man, whom we now can see with the benefit of hindsight, was upholding not only sound American ideals, but deeply rooted Christian principles. And this is why we remember him this weekend. Martin, to put it simply, was in the business of changing water into wine, bringing about an impossible transformation to help those whose dignity was threatened and following closely in the footsteps of Christ. And so should all of us follow. Because we still live in a world very much torn by strife, by violence and oppression. We are marked, many of us, by privilege. Privilege that was not of our own making, ultimately, but we carry it nonetheless. And we have responsibility for how we live into it or how we don't how we reach out to those in need with tender hearts and be ourselves transformed, or how we often take the easier road of self-protection and benefit directly or indirectly from the structures that continue to weigh down the least among us. And this matters deeply to the heart of God and demands much of each of us. Martin Luther King decided not to mince words when he put it this way in his letter to his fellow clergymen. He wrote, I must make two honest confessions to you, my Christian and Jewish brothers. First, I must confess that over the past few years I have grown gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in his stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klanner, but the white moderate, who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice who constantly says, I agree with you in the goal you seek, but I cannot agree with your methods of direct action. 
who paternalistically believes he can set the timetable for another man's freedom, who lives by a mythical concept of time and who constantly advises the Negro to wait for a, quote, more convenient season. Shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection. Martin Luther King Jr. went down still struggling against the forces of oppression. We are invited by his legacy to pick up the struggle again in our unique situations as 21st century Christians. Being constantly on guard against oppression of all forms and facing down the attitudes in our hearts and communities that demand that we wait rather than act. And Martin Luther King Jr.'s witness even speaks to our recent and ongoing controversies as a greater church over human sexuality. In his letter from a Birmingham jail, he writes about the sin of separation and what the Jewish philosopher Martin Buber called substituting the I-thou relationship for I-it, the denigration of a different kind of person to someone or something less than fully human. We are called instead to seek and serve what our baptismal covenant calls the face of Christ in all people, the dignity of every human being, and that foundational vocation of Christianity and loving God and loving our neighbors as ourselves. My brothers and sisters in Christ, we have not arrived yet as a church. Jesus has not yet completed in us the miracle of changing our bland waters of complicity into the fine wine of everlasting life and salvation for all of God's children. There is more to be done. I only invite you to ponder that this weekend in Christ's name and in the name of Martin, one of his beloved disciples. Even as I bid you rest and wish you peace. Before I close my sermon today, I want to address a very pressing sadness that has been on many of our hearts and minds this past week and share with you another understanding of what it means that Jesus changes water into wine in today's gospel. Last Monday, a friend and classmate of several of our youth, Clive Berry, tragically took his own life. Like the chief steward in today's gospel, I was the last in the know, hearing about it only this past Thursday and barely waking up yesterday to the impact that this has had on our children and on our families. For that, I apologize. And I want to pledge to you again today that I will be more attentive to the life of this community in the future. The loss of someone young, no matter what the circumstances, is an incredible blow to the soul and to the heart.
And even as I preach now, Esty is meeting with our youth to open up conversation over this painful tragedy in our common life. And we have pledged to keep our doors open, our cell phones on, and lights lit for anyone who wants a place to be heard, even if it is only a safe space to articulate those hard questions, those hard questions that seem to have no good answers. So we will join today together in prayer for Clive, for his rest in the infinitely gracious heart of God, and for his family and for all those who have been touched in small and great ways by his death. And I invite and encourage you to continue taking time this weekend to turn to each other and listen more intently than usual, to set aside the hectic business and pressures of our common life, a common life that is too often built on competition rather than compassion, and seek ways to rekindle and more deeply reflect that deep, honest love that we all yearn for in each other. And do this all the more urgently if you have children. Our children are under enormous pressures these days, and they need so much more than good grades and extracurricular activities aplenty. They need our deepest sympathy and our hearts attentive. The water of tears in this community speaks to the heart of the gospel and the heart of Christ. Tears shed for a terrible loss. Tears shed for pain unspoken and fears unhealed. Tears shed at the pain of lost conversation, a lost life, and that awful hollow sense of things left undone and unsaid. It is the water of those tears that Christ turns to in us and in each other this day and every day and will turn with a tender touch into the joyous wines of eternal life, never leaving us in despair and saving the best till last. Hold that hope for each other as you pray and embrace one another, that hope for healing and a sign of God's greatness to God's people for troubled times and troubled hearts. My sisters and brothers in Christ Jesus, may you continue to search for and find peace. And may we only become a community of greater love for those in need. And I thank you for the humbling opportunity to share this journey with you in good times and in bad. Amen. For listening to the sermon podcast from the Episcopal Church of Our Savior, Mill Valley, California. We strive to be a welcoming community for those seeking to deepen their relationship with God and to journey in faith with God's people through the breaking of bread and in service to others in Christ's name.
You may reach us by phone at 415-388-1907 or through our website, OurSaviorMV.org. That's O-U-R-S-A-V-I-O-U-R-M-V for Mill Valley, dot org. We wish you God's peace, and we hope to be able to greet you in person very soon.